Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. In the podcast this week, I'm speaking to crime author Cara Hunter. Cara is the author of five best-selling crime novels following the investigations of D.I. Adam Fawley and his team. Set in her home city of Oxford, Cara's books feature an ensemble cast of characters that readers have avidly followed since 2017. Her fast-paced, twisting plot lines deliver a gripping read and have won spots on the Richard and Judy Book Club, numerous shortlistings in crime fiction awards and have been optioned for TV. Cara's latest book, The Whole Truth, was published earlier this year, and it's just recently been announced that she's signed a four-book deal with HarperCollins. Cara, welcome to Macy Books Meets. Hello, it's lovely to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast, so thanks very much for joining me. I'd like to start off like I do with all my guests by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. Uh, where did you grow up, and what was life like for you? Well, I grew up in a suburb of northwest London. In fact, some of Adam Fawley's past is actually my own past. So anyone who spotted that when one of the books, and I genuinely now can't remember which one it was, where he talks about being brought up in a place that wasn't really a real place. It was just a stop on the central line <laughs> that sort of turned into a place because there was a train station there. And that's basically what happened to me. Um, so it wasn't a particularly sort of beautiful or scenic place to grow up and I didn't grow up in a house full of books either. One of the things I always like to say to people is libraries are so important and bookshops are so important because I remember going to both of those when I was a child because those were the places that had books and we didn't have any at home. But I was always absolutely mad keen on reading it right from a little girl. My parents told me I learned to read when I was three years old and that's probably Mm -hmm. true because I just can't remember learning. I can't remember that time of looking at page and thinking it was black squiggles and I didn't know what any of them meant. So I think they're, they're probably right. And wow. um, I've been a reader ever since and just devoured everything. And probably that's why I ended up doing English at university because that was the passion that I had um, was reading and it stood me in pretty good stead. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> so do you have any particular books you specifically remember reading as a child or do you remember what your first book was that you remember reading? I, the first book I remember was called Ant and Bee, which is one of these ones for really tidy children. And there was another one about um, a little boy who liked eating jam out of a jar, and I can't remember what that was called. Uh, but I definitely remember reading that. And the book that really changed me in terms of seeing how words work and wanting to do things with words was The Lord of the Rings. And I won't be alone in that. Um, there'll be millions of people who who empathise with that. But I read it at a very formative age. I think I was about 11 or 12. So not only did it give me a real passion for language, but it also formed my values in a way as well, if that doesn't sound too sort of highfalutin. But things like a love of nature, 
and the idea of fellowship and friendship and how important that is. So reading that book at that age, I think, became very you know, formative for me. And it did affect some of the later decisions I made because I tried to get into Oxford because of that, because that was where Tolkien had taught. And I, I remember starting to learn Anglo-Saxon in my first term at Oxford. And of course, all of the Edoras characters have Anglo-Saxon names. So it sort of brought it all back round in a beautiful circle. Wow. That is amazing. I was going to ask you whether it had any impact on, on those decisions, because um, obviously we just, we're just down the road from Oxford as well. And I like going into the pubs in Oxford, knowing that that's where they were. It's quite strange to think that you're having a point where, you know, these geniuses sat at some point. Absolutely. I mean, Oxford, as you'll know, is one of those towns where you're falling over a writer every five minutes. And it's very good for your ego because it doesn't matter how important you think you are. There's always someone in the room more famous than you are. (laughs) So, So it's actually quite good for you in that sense. Did you carry on reading throughout your teens? Because some people have a bit of a slump during their teens, or were you someone that read all the way through? No, I read all the way through because um, I got this bug about wanting to try and get into Oxford when I was must have been fairly soon after reading Tolkien, so probably 12, 13. And I didn't come from a family that had any university background at all. I remember my mum left school at 16 and my dad at 14 because he could still do it back then. And no one in the family had ever even done A-levels, never mind university. So to try to make that jump from that, from O-levels really, which is where the family came from, to trying to get into Oxford was just this sort of mammoth, mammoth, mammoth mountain. So I knew I had a lot ahead of me to try and to achieve that if I was going to. So yes, I just worked my socks off. I didn't have very much for social life as a teenager. I didn't get in any trouble. I was really boring. <laughs> But that's amazing, though, to have not just have been the first person in your family to go to university, because it wasn't just any university, like you say, you went to Oxford. And so to have actually had that self-motivation at such a young age is pretty impressive. Because um, obviously, you were successful, you ended up at Oxford University, and you studied English as an undergrad. Um, how was that for you, the transition of moving from your home in London to Oxford? Well, yes, it was quite a big culture shock, I suppose. I did quite a lot of research before I, I applied and I deliberately chose a college that wasn't too public school, if that makes sense, because I went to a state school. So I didn't want to go somewhere. I mean, obviously, we'd all seen Brideshead by then, the one with Anthony Andrews and Jeremy Irons. And, and yes, of course, it's absolutely beautiful, but uh, I, I wanted somewhere where I would fit in a bit better. And uh, I certainly, I was lucky I found that because my old college, which is Lincoln, has always been very welcoming of everybody, if you see what I mean. So it was a nice atmosphere in that sense and a quite small college, and I enjoyed that. And and I loved learning I just absolutely love all of the aspects of it even things like Anglo-Saxon which everybody used to moan about I actually enjoyed doing that and it did funnily enough it came into use for me just the once I mean talk about dead language being useful but I remember I was actually away in Denmark and um, it was years ago before you had everything in English or you had the internet so it was just whatever you could find in your hotel room and there was the guide to the films that were available on the TV and I managed to work out that one of them was Death Wish 3 just because it looked like Anglo-Saxon it was just the one and only time it's ever been any use to me and I didn't even want to watch Death Wish 3 <laughs> it's probably more use to you in that one time than it's probably been to anybody else. <laughs> at least at least you found a practical use for it. In, yeah. in scary day. 
<laughs> That's fantastic. So you obviously did your, you did your time at Oxford. And then after graduation, what did you do then? Because you ultimately ended up coming back to do a PhD. Yeah, I did. Okay. Much, much later, though. So I went into the city to start with. I mean, this is the 80s. Yes, I'm really that old. Um, <laughs> so I went into the city. It was Big Bang and it was quite exciting. And it had the appeal also doing something I'd never really done before. I mean, I didn't think I was much good at numbers. It turned out it was better than I thought it was. But it was quite good discipline to actually set yourself a completely different type of challenge at that age when, you know, you've got the energy to do it. Mm. So, yeah, I enjoyed that for a while. Um, and then I worked in business after that for a bit. Ended up working in PR, which I really enjoyed. And then after that, finally went freelance and became a copywriter. So there's a sort of a circular movement coming back around here. So I've come back into a job that involved words and then back into a job that was all about words, which was being a copywriter, which I did for, you know, as a freelancer for about 20 years. So I, I really enjoyed doing that. And it did teach me a lot of useful things uh, for what I do now. It taught me the value of keeping a promise. So if you have a deadline, you stick to it. It also gets you away from any sort of self-indulgence around things like writer's block, because you simply can't. If you're a copywriter, you've got a deadline. You're being paid to do a piece of work. You just got to get on with it. So you've got to find a way of dealing with the brief, um, even if you don't have any ideas straight away. So that taught me a lot. And also self-discipline in that if you're a freelance, you just have to keep yourself at it because uh, you're not in a work environment where the discipline is imposed by you know, the place you're in, you're at home, so you've got to do it for yourself. So I learned a lot that way and uh, it came in, in handy. And I was, I was still copywriting, actually, right the way through till probably I was writing in the dark. So I didn't give it up until relatively recently. Oh, wow. So at what point did you decide to go back and do your PhD and what triggered that decision? Oh, yeah, that was really interesting, actually. It's quite a nice little story. I remember I was at work and I was doing quite a big PR job. I was, I was director of the, of the company doing that. And I had this really nice guy who was my mentor. Um, he, was, he was paid by the company, but he was, it was like a private mentoring relationship to me and him. And we went out for lunch one day. And he said to me, well, okay, so, so what do you want to achieve? What do you want to you know, achieve in life? What do you want to do? And I started to answer in terms of the job I was currently doing. And then he interrupted me and said, no, no, I'm, I'm talking about bigger things than that. And what do you actually want to do? And before I'd even thought about it, I mean, it came out of my head without me thinking, was I want to do a doctorate and I want to write a novel. And there it was. <laughs> that thought had never formed itself into words before that moment. So he's in the way the godfather of this whole thing. But in the following 10 years, I did both of those things. And yeah, there's a great sense of pride in that. And really glad that I did do it because I love what I do now, but I also love doing the doctorate as well. That's amazing. And does he know, are you still in touch with him? Does he know that that was kind of the trigger point? Yeah, he does. He does. I haven't been in touch with him for quite a while, but yeah, he does. He does know. So yeah, I hope he's he's sort of putting that on his CV now. (laughs) (laughs) I can get you into a place where you fulfill your life's ambition. (laughs) I do think it's funny how random conversations can just suddenly just have such, you know, just come out of nowhere and have such an impact on you yeah I think so yeah I think you're absolutely right and uh, but it's obviously always got to be in there already in a way because most of the time I don't think random conversations trigger something entirely new I think what they do is they crystallize things for you that you were already half thinking about or had in the back of your mind and and I think that was his skill was Mm -hmm. to 
to actually jolt me to that point. And I really admire people who have a skill like that. So the idea of a mentor, if you haven't got a mentor, I really recommend it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, actually, because I was also working in the city before I took on the bookshop. And, and that was a really big thing in that industry. I mean, you know, you said that was when you were working in PR. But in, in the city, we used to always have mentors applied. And we were, I was on the graduate scheme. So it was part of the scheme. And then I then went on to become a mentor. And it's something I found really, really useful. And I think it's something you take for granted in big organizations where that kind of thing is just kind of offered to you on a plate. And when you're not in that kind of framework, then some people don't necessarily think about the value add of doing that and and think that it has to be something more structured. But I think you're absolutely right. To find something you can just bounce ideas off is so invaluable, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It's something we find in the book trade is I've got a couple of fellow booksellers that own other bookshops that we've become really good friends over time and we just we've done that a lot especially in the last 18 months when things have been so bonkers oh yes I mean yeah I I can absolutely see how important it would would have been during Mm. lockdown when you know all human contact was being exterminated and and we were all having to find new ways of actually just getting through it and yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) so I've heard that the way you actually came around to working on your first book, Close to Home, the idea actually came to you when you were on holiday. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yes. Born on a beach, old Adam Foley. <laughs> yeah, I always take loads of books on holiday with me. And I do actually like having physical books to read. Um, though obviously, when, when your poor husband is the one carrying the suitcase, he's not quite so keen. Um, but of course, one of the things that you learn if you do an English degree, and certainly if you do it at Oxford, where the terms are even shorter than most universities, is you have to get through one hell of a lot of reading. So you end up reading really fast. So I read really fast. So I get through, especially things that are easy to read and things like crime are designed to be a quick and pleasurable read. So I can get through a crime book in a day easy. Sometimes I can dip through two. So my poor husband was um, carrying all these books. And so we're sitting on the beach and I'm reading a book a day and I'm sort of getting to the end going, well, it's all right. The the beginning was great, but not such a good ending. And eventually he said to me, he looked over his sunglasses at me and he said, well, why don't you write one then? You know, so, so <laughs> you can't complain if you haven't done it yourself, which is actually quite a good motto in life. You know, don't complain unless you've had a go of doing it and worked out how hard it is. So, so there's a message for all the one-star Amazon reviewers. <laughs> no, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but you know what I mean. So anyway, I, I did actually take up the challenge. And, and again, perhaps it was a crystallization moment because... By the end of that holiday, I actually had a synopsis for Close to Home. I certainly had the twist, which obviously we're not going to give away, but I had that. And so by the end of the holiday, I was working on how I could create, as it were, a universe in which that twist would happen. And that twist would be both a shock and logical, which is what you always want with a twist. You don't want a twist that people feel cheated by. You want a twist that after a moment or two, they think, yeah, actually, yeah, I get that. And that's, yeah. that's where, you, where you want to be. Um, so, yeah, that was what I was doing. And you know, as, as you say, the rest is history. Yeah. That is amazing. So how long did it take you from that holiday to you actually getting your book published? Well, the sort of phases of that, the, the first phase of it happened quite quickly. I mean, I wrote it quite quickly. I'm a reasonably quick writer. So I think the holiday would have been the sort of back end of the year. So I think I'd written it by the following spring. And 
as soon as it was finished, it did go to a publisher very quickly. It went to auction, which is one of those marvellous things wow. that can happen. So, yes, I knew it was going to be published quite quickly. But because Penguin wanted to get the right slot for it, and you'll understand about this, but that actually books have to be sort of teed up, ready to go, like planes mm-hmm. at airports. You know, you, you can't have them all going out at once. You've got to actually have them going in, in an order. So they wanted the right slot for it. So actually, it didn't actually get published for about 18 months. Okay. Oh, 15, something like that. We're waiting for the slot. So in the meantime, of course, no one knew who I was or anything about me. So I could just quietly get on with um, writing the second one. (laughs) So by the time Close to Home came out, I already had In the Dark ready to go, which was good because it meant that I didn't have quite such a bad experience of, you know, second book scariness as a lot of people do because I'd already written the damn thing. It was there. So, you know, I didn't have the, the same sort of worries about it because, you know, it was already ready to go. Um, and that, that meant I had the first few books, I think the first three books was three books in two years or something like that. But that was why. It wasn't because I was writing them quicker. It's just that I already had a head start. So, yeah, the whole process from starting to actual seeing it on the shelf was quite long, but doing the, the actual book didn't take that didn't long. Take long. Yeah, that's actually, uh, it's interesting. I hear that time and time again from authors about that second book syndrome, especially mm-hmm. people that have spent a long time building up to their first novel. I think the pressure that people feel. So like you say, it's actually quite nice for you to have known that that one was kind of in the bag, the first one was in the bag. <laughs> you can yeah. go and work on your second one. So when you, um, I guess you kind of partially asked, asked the question then. So I was going to say, when you had your first book published, did you have any idea that it was then going to go on to become a series? Obviously you knew the second book was coming, but how many books did you have in your head that you thought you know would follow on from your first book when I wrote it I had none in my head I wrote it thinking it was just a one-off and I'd be lucky to get it published at all never mind anything else so that actually is interesting because it, it sort of leads on to a question about Adam Foley that I'm often asked is you know so you created him to hold a series no in fact the opposite I created a book which required a police officer and he was that. So he's a piece of plot mechanism originally. I mean, a nice one and an important one, but he was created in order to fulfill the needs of that plot, not because I wanted to write police procedural per se, because the type of plot that is, you know, a missing child, you're going to have to have police investigation. It's inevitable. So he had to exist in some form or other. So I was very lucky, really, that I created him and he's turned out to be interesting and sort of relatable enough that people like him and the team, because it's very importantly a team effort. So that was luck, really. And I didn't know I was going to be writing any more until until Penguin bought the first one and said we would like a, a series out of this. And I think my first deal was three three books. So I knew I was going to be doing three, but I didn't have any of those stories in my head at all when I first finished Close to Home. Oh, that's incredible though, isn't it? To have had a three big deal straight away. So obviously we've kind of touched on the fact that we're, we're living in this strange time at the moment. We, I was about to say, the people I've been interviewing recently, I've been saying, oh, you know, things have been getting better, but hot off the press. Yeah. <laughs> as we're recording this, obviously the, the new variant has just been announced. And as of tomorrow, masks are going to be mandatory back in, in shops, which I, I'm going to welcome actually as an individual who owns a business. But how has it been for you living with COVID and what impacts that had on you and your writing? Well, I had it a lot easier than a lot of people because I've got a garden. <laughs> and if you remember the first lockdown, we were going into summer And we had that spectacularly beautiful period of spring weather just after the first lockdown happened. So I was very lucky. I have a garden and I live in a beautiful place. So I was able to walk and, you know, actually see the city. And and it was breathtaking. I mean, Oxford then, 
empty. No one's seen it like that for hundreds of years. And there was a, a beautiful morning where the weather was absolutely perfect and standing in Radcliffe Square and all I could hear was a blackbird singing. I mean, that will never happen oh again. Goodness. So yeah. there were moments that were just miraculous. But for me, like for everyone else, I'm sure it was the grind of it after a while. There was novelty value at the beginning. Like I just said, things, you know, things happened that you thought, well, wow, that's you know, a, a sky with no planes in it, that sort of thing. But very soon that sort of wore off and I was writing the whole truth. Luckily, I had the idea for the whole truth before COVID happened because I didn't have an idea for a book worth its salt for the entire time we were in lockdown, by the in and out, in and out, in and out. So I was just working on that book and I really didn't like that because I, I think it was because it was such a hamster wheel. You know, you, you know, it was Groundhog Day. You know, every day was the same. You didn't go out. You didn't see anyone. So I found it rather a grueling process. And I, for the first time ever, I was setting myself word count targets just to get through it. It felt like such a grind and I was a bit worried what the book was going to be like because I hadn't enjoyed creating it as I had with the others. But then I started going back with my edits and I'm looking at everything. For a start, I couldn't remember having written half of it, you know, so it's almost as if everyone was in this like zombie state. Uh, but I was really pleased with it, reading it back, thinking, oh, actually, no, this is, this is all right, you know, so, so that was fine. Um, but at, at the time, it really wasn't any fun at all. And I'm sure everyone was the same. Uh, and, and I, as I say, I had it easier than a lot of people. I can't imagine what it must have been like if you were living in a flat with small children trying to homeschool. I don't have kids, so I didn't have that. But I just can't imagine how people coped with that. And I don't think they're going to be able to do it again. So I just hope the government doesn't make us do it again, because I, I doubt very much whether whether any of us are going to be able to, to actually now we know what it's like. I mean, we yeah. went into it to start with not knowing, but now we do. And, and oh, no, please, God. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. No, no more. <laughs> this, this, surreal, this surreal phase in our life. Well, let's talk about your latest book, The Whole Truth, just because you touched on it there. So it, it's the fifth book in the Detective Inspector Foley series, and it starts out with a report of a sexual assault taking place. And a college in Oxford. Um, but what's quite surprising to the people that are investigating it is who it is that's reporting yeah. that assault. Can you tell me a bit more about the book and, and where the idea came from? Well, often with the books, as you'll know, because you've read some of them, what I, I like to do is look at a contemporary issue of some kind, but look at it from a different angle. So take it upside down or, you know, whatever, and just use that viewpoint as a way of exploring it and finding new issues perhaps new ways of thinking about it so this one was pretty easy to see where one might do that it looks at sexual politics sexual harassment so one way of, of, of turning that on its head and looking at how the issues play out is to have the person who's accused of the crime be a woman and the the victim actually be a man mm-hmm. uh, especially a younger man but the interesting thing here of course is that as we all know sexual harassment is about power not about sex so here the power relationship is that she the alleged perpetrator is his tutor and he's a a young student so that was a way of looking at power and gender in a different way so that was uh, quite interesting for me yeah absolutely I was going to ask you about that because um you must have had to do a fair bit of research on the subject what kind of research did you do well mostly online of course or given that um, we couldn't do very much (laughs) But but yes, I mean, I did spend a lot of 
a lot of time looking particularly at some websites for organisations that help men who've been victims of sexual violence. And yes, it's not as common, nothing like as common, uh, even less common uh, as it were men and women rather than two men, that happens more often. But yes, men are victims of sexual violence, sexual harassment, and because it's not so common, often people don't even think it exists at all, and yes, it does. And so it was very interesting reading some of the experiences of men who had had this and how they felt about it. And and the fact that this social environment was not set up to understand the position they were in, because it's much more seen as, if, obviously, as a, an issue that women suffer, uh, made it worse for them. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to look at it that way, because it, it was a it's a way just of just jolting us a little bit back to that word again and thinking, yeah, this it doesn't always happen the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it really did make the reader did make me as a reader think whilst whilst reading the book. I mean, all of your books as well keep uh, contain an awful lot of detail about police procedures and, um, mm, and how yeah. that all works. Um, how do you get that level of detail? Do you have some good contacts in the police that you work with? Is it just that you've you've developed that knowledge over time? How, how do you get that right? Well, I started out just doing it online, just um, investigating the nice stuff online because um, I didn't feel able, as an unpublished writer with no track record at all, I didn't feel able to just bowl up to a police station and say, could you give me some of your valuable time while, you know, just come off investigating important crimes and come and talk to me? <laughs> I just didn't feel able to do that. I didn't feel justified in doing that. So I did a lot of research online for Coast to Home, the first version of it. And actually, my editor, Penguin, thought that I had a police advisor because she said it came over so, uh, so awesome, an authentic way. But actually, I didn't. But she said, no, okay, I think now's the time for you to find one. So, so you know, to cut a long story short, I do now have a, a, a working DI as my advisor who is brilliant. And he laughs and says, oh, you're learning a lot because he doesn't have to change so much these days. Um, the one thing we always have, um, and he again always makes him laugh, is that um, you know I'm always looking for a dramatic end to a scene and a nice little cliffhanger, and that means I often want to end a scene with someone being arrested. And yeah, he says, no, 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 no. If we're going to interview somebody, we we arrest them at the beginning, not at the end. So I'm always having that one. So, but these days I'm trying to to get better at it, so he doesn't have to, to tell me off so, so often. But yeah, he's fantastic, and I also have a CSI. Um, and in, in some ways, the CSI is even more important because so much of crime now hinges on forensics. So if you know, there's absolutely no point coming up with what you think is a marvellous story with loads of twists when you know, a competent CSI will walk into the room in five minutes and say, well, I know exactly what's happened here. So you actually have to. He's the one I always talk to before I start. Most of my other advisors, I mean, people like doctors and lawyers and people like that I talk to, they're pretty much after the event. They get a first draft and then we go from there. But the CSI guy I always talked to beforehand. And actually, talking of the whole truth, if, if you have read it, and again, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's one particular crux in there to do with forensic evidence and, and forensic evidence that appears to be incontrovertible. And we cannot understand how it can't be the truth. It has to be right. It has to be, as it were, the whole truth. So I had to find a way of creating this piece of forensic evidence, but something that would in fact, in the end, prove to be ambiguous. So, so uh, I actually got the idea for that, it's sounding very odd because I'm trying not to give it away, but I got the idea for that and rang up my CSI guy and said, look, I'm, this is what I need to do. And this is how I think I can do it. 
what do you think? And there was this lovely pause at the end. And then he said, yeah, yeah, you could do that. I've never seen it done, but it could be done. So that was fantastic. fantastic. It meant, and it has fooled pretty much everybody so far. So that's been great from my point of view. And he's been invaluable because of that. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely caught me out. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> so the book's based in Oxford, which obviously is just down the road from Abingdon, where our shop is. And indeed, the book actually mentions Abingdon. Which may be it very does, helpful. yes, yes. <laughs> so the city's almost like a character in its own right. Yeah. Was that by design? I think so, yes. I mean, the very first version of Close to Home, I disguised the city as, uh, just gave it a different name, but it didn't fool anybody for more than about three minutes. So that didn't work. I was trying to avoid the whole Morse thing in the, in the nicest way. I mean, I'm a huge Morse fan, but you do think, well, it's been done and it's been done so many times. But at least Forney's Oxford is not Morse's Oxford. It's not really the university. I know, as we've just been discussing, there clearly is an angle with the whole truth, but because that made so much sense to set it in a university context, because I needed the power relationship. But all of the others pretty much avoid the university wherever I can. I certainly avoid the sort of chocolate boxy bits of the university. And if I do use the university, I go for bits that people won't know so well, you know, the, yeah. the more modern colleges. But I mean, given it did then turn into Oxford, it was Oxford proper uh, and everyone knew it was then yes, I had to make a virtue out of that. And I do concentrate on, again, with the city itself, as well as the university, the parts of it people won't know so well. So the bits around the centre and the bits where we have some quite interesting communities, some of which have been there for a very long time, and not primarily academic ones either. There are other types. And of course, you've got the very industrial bit of the city with the BMW car plant and things like that. So it's it's been more than just a university city for a long time. And I suppose that's what I'm looking at. And yet it's got this sort of fairy dust because you've got Oxford as well. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's just go back to books that you've read um, again for a minute. So obviously, we talked about lockdown, the fact that it was quite difficult to write during lockdown. How were you in terms of reading? Did you manage to read? Or were you one of these people that kind of that, that struggled? I, I don't think I read anything. No, it's funny, isn't it? Apart from newspapers. Yeah, I wanted to. And like you say, I know so many people who said, Oh, well, at least we'll have so much time to read. And I barely read anything. I mean, I did read something, I think, but I can't remember anything I read, so it didn't make any, any great impression on me, I must admit. It was hard. It was one of those things where you know, your brain tells you this should be logical and should be something that you can you know, use all this time you've suddenly got. But everyone was so unsettled, yeah. I think. And I think actually, interestingly enough, a lot of people were reading crime, weren't they? Because yeah. there was quite a lot of uh, stuff in the things like the bookseller about how crime figures were going up for reading. And uh, I think that's because people were looking for a universe in which the world was certain again. And that's the one thing about the moral universe, if you like, of, of crime fiction, in that most of the time the baddies get punished and discovered and all's right with the world at the end. And we feel that we have someone like the central detective who's a sort of moral centre of the book in, in that he's trying or she is trying to find out what's gone wrong. So I think that's one of the things that appealed to people during lockdown reading was that this was a world which made sense. Yeah. Whereas the world we were all suddenly living in made no sense at all and we had no control over it anymore. So I think that that's why you know, people liked crime in, in lockdown rather than sort of experimental stuff where you think, oh, no, no, I'm not sure on this. I, I want to have a world that I can understand. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff kind of based in reality as well. Mm. So you, I presume you're back on form with your reading now. 
Yes, yes, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, being, I'm very lucky because one of the nice perks of this job is I get sent books to read early on. So I get lots of, you know, early delicious copies of crime fiction that won't be out about six months. So that's that's one of the things I, I like about what I do. That's amazing. What was the last book you read? I've just finished Lucy Foley's new one, which is called oh, Paris Apartment. And I've just finished fantastic. that. They did a beautiful job with the with the proofs. You have your own name on the front, which is really lovely. So I know, I know, very glamorous. So yes, and she's uh, she's done it again. <laughs> oh, she's her books are fantastic. Do you know when that's coming out? I think it's next spring. I don't know okay. off the top of my head, but it's certainly not before Christmas. Have to keep an eye out for that. And I have a theory about books. I have a theory that everybody that is a reader has a book that has had a major impact on them at some point in their life. And that could be professionally, it could be personally. Obviously, we've already touched on Lord of the Rings. So um, I was just going to have that one again then. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, is there another book that's had that impact on you? There is, actually. There is another book. And it is a crime book, though. I don't know whether it's still, you can still get it in print, but um, it's Joan Smith's A Masculine Ending. Now, her books were made into TV when they were first out, so this would be 80s, 90s. Um, and she has a, an English professor, a woman, as her sort of detective, so it's not a police procedural. But it, I just loved those books so much, and it, I think it made me start thinking, again, we're back to it was in the back of my mind, to start thinking about whether I could do something like that because those books made sense to me in, in a way that... Um, I mean, obviously, I love things like Agatha Christie, but I didn't. I would never have thought I could write something like that. Whereas I felt I could perhaps write something like Joan Smith was writing. And you know, years later, I've since met her and had a massive fangirl moment. And you know, wow, you know. So, uh, you know, I feel very privileged to sort of call her a friend now. But yeah, I would recommend those if you if you can still get hold of them. But there's a series. I think there's four in total. But a masculine ending is the first one, and you can probably still find the, the BBC adaptations. It was um, Janet McTeer and Bill Nye back in the day. So if you can find them, they're worth watching too. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I've not, I've not come across them before, so I'll definitely yeah. look them up. And it's just nice to hear when books have had that kind of influence on a writer and seeing, you know, you can see that guide. And it's fascinating that when you talked earlier on about Lord of the Rings as well, just to have such clarity at that at such a young age of, of the impact that had on you, I think it's great. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you've got a new book coming out next year, mm-hmm. which is the fifth in the Adam Forley series. And it's also just been announced that you've just signed a four book deal with HarperCollins to write four books, but two of them are going to continue on the, in the series and two of them are going to be standalone. That's all pretty exciting. There's a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot going on, yeah. So can you tell us anything about the new book that's coming out next year or is it still? Next year? Well, yes, it's number five, as we said. It's called Hope to Die. So I'm following on my three-word title thing with with Forley. And uh, it's based or inspired by, not based on, because it's not quite as close as that, but inspired by a real-life case. But I'm not going to tell you which one because otherwise you're going to have too many expectations when you come to it. But it's proof that uh, my true crime-watching habit has actually paid off because... I found I found this um, this story of watching somehow um, online, and obviously I've changed it and played with it, but that's where it came from. I really like it. Everybody who's read it so far has really liked it, and, and quite a few people think it's the best one. So I'm hoping readers will like it as well. But after that, the book I'm now just starting to put together will be a standalone. So the, after the number number five, no six, six, he's six. The next one's six. <laughs> 
There we go. Too many books. After number six, Pauline, next summer, um, it will be a standalone the year after, which I'm starting to work on. And then probably a Foley after that, but we'll see how things go. It slightly depends on me getting a good idea for a Foley book, really. <laughs> That's really lovely, though, to think that you're going to have the chance to do standalone, because obviously the Foley series is fantastic. But I bet for you as a writer, in terms of a new challenge, that must be pretty exciting. It is. Um, and also, well, there are two reasons for that. One is that I got an idea which I couldn't do as a 40 book and also I think it's one of my writer friends who does series and standalone says it's like in the nicest sense of palate cleanser that it gives you a chance just to do something different stretch a few muscles that you don't use with the series and I'm also very 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 aware that I'm, I'm very happy with the six books I've written but the danger always with the series is it starts to become a bit samey or a bit formulaic and you don't, the last thing you want is, is the reader's response to be, oh, well, I like the others, but I'm not sure about this one. So that I'm really, really worried, or not worried, but concerned that I don't get into that position. I don't think I am. I think that number six, Hope to Die, is, is a good book. I really like it. But I don't want to find myself in the position where I'm slightly going off the boil. And I think doing a standalone be a fantastic way of making sure that doesn't happen yeah absolutely well it's so exciting there's lots going on and it's all really well deserved i think your books are fantastic um they're they're excellent they're fast paced they keep the reader guessing and i love even though obviously they've got the same ensemble cast they're so unique in their own right and i like the fact that i can introduce them to readers as you know as standalones even though they are part of a series as well Cara, thank you so much for chatting to me today. It's been absolutely lovely to have you on the podcast. And I really wish you all the best with your book next year and your exciting new adventure with HarperCollins. Well, we'll come back and talk about standalone, hopefully. (laughs) Sounds good to me. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.